0: Every hour, on average, the state of Louisiana loses a football field's worth of coastal land due to rising sea levels. According to Pat Forbes, the executive director of the Louisiana Office of Community Development, Louisiana is, quote, losing land faster than anybody else in the country, probably faster than anybody in the world. Forbes recently helped author a state government report on climate change, which states that, quote, Louisiana is in the midst of an existential crisis. Scientific models predict that by 2067 much of the bottom third of Louisiana will be submerged by the Gulf of Mexico. In many coastal towns, more than half the population has fled to the interior. But as a result of rising flood insurance rates and falling property values, many residents are finding it impossible to sell their homes and leave. Forbes addressed one implication of this challenge on Louisiana public broadcasting.
1: If we continue to have people live in places that we know are dangerous and we don't discourage that and we don't make it possible, we don't facilitate people's ability to live in safer places, then we're setting ourselves up for having our most vulnerable populations living in our most dangerous places.
0: Despite the severity of the crisis in Louisiana, many residents continue to doubt the reality of climate change. In 2017, CNN correspondent Ed Lavandera traveled to the coastal town of Cameron, Louisiana to talk to climate change skeptics. In one encounter, he spoke with a fishing company owner named Leo Dodson.
1: I just don't think climate change is real.
0: Is there anything a scientist can say to you to change your mind or show you any kind of evidence that would change your mind?
1: If he was 500 years old and he told me it's changed, I would would probably believe him, but... uh, in my lifetime, I didn't see any change.
0: You'd have to hear from a 500-year-old yeah, scientist. Right. Scientifically, climate change is real. But for Dotson, the science isn't enough. He hasn't seen a change, so he doesn't think a change is happening. And unless he hears differently from a climatologist Methuselah, his mind is made up. Corporations have an outsized influence on public conversations about climate change. The oil and coal industries are two of the leading producers of greenhouse gas emissions. By spreading disinformation about the impacts of emissions, they can protect their bottom lines from environmental regulations. In 2015, the former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman found that Peabody Energy, the then-largest privately-owned coal company in the world, had done just that. Peabody made misleading statements to investors, denying the impact of climate change in violation of New York state law. Internally, the company had projections about the devastating impacts of climate change for their industry and the world. However, they refused to make those impacts clear because admitting the reality of climate change could threaten company profits. Once investors had a clear understanding of the projections, they pulled out of the company. In 2016, Peabody filed for bankruptcy, and New York State began prosecuting ExxonMobil for similar false statements about climate impacts. Money plays a significant role in climate skepticism and denial, but it isn't the only factor. Corporate interests are tapping into pre-existing belief structures. Without these beliefs, climate denialism might not have taken hold. The coal and oil industries have exploited two sets of beliefs about how knowledge is produced – postmodernism and Protestantism. These two ideas are in many ways philosophically opposed, but they nevertheless share one critical feature that makes widespread denial of scientific truth possible. An emphasis on individual experience. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we'll discuss how these two theories of truth production combine to present a danger to us all. American Protestantism is deeply ingrained in U.S. culture. The first European settlers were English Protestants seeking religious liberty— And today, half of all Americans identify as Protestant. Christmas is a national holiday. Our work week is defined by having Sundays off, coinciding with traditional Protestant prayer services. Of the 45 presidents, 41 have identified as Protestant. If we want to understand any American phenomenon, including climate denialism and American conceptions of truth, we need to understand how Protestantism interacts with it. The foundational Protestant story is a story of refusing to submit to authority. In 1517, an obscure German monk named Martin Luther sent an essay protesting Catholic Church corruption to his local bishop. Just three years later, he was summoned to a trial by Pope Leo X and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and ordered to renounce his criticisms of church leadership, practices, and teachings. This scene was dramatized in the 2003 film Luther. Will
2: you recant or will you not? My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe i cannot and i will not recant here i stand i can do no other god help me
0: as a consequence of his defiance luther was excommunicated by the pope and branded an outlaw by the emperor But Luther's core idea, that truth could be discovered not through a church council or papal decree, but within the conscience of each believer, continued to spread. His protests launched Protestantism, and 500 years later, his ideas continued to influence the way Protestant Christians think about truth. This influence is particularly visible in charismatic Christianity, a branch of American Protestantism that emphasizes personal experience over expert opinion. Charismatic Christianity is both a specific set of Christian denominations and a theological movement that sees holy gifts as central to Christian practice. These gifts include speaking in tongues, miraculous healing, and other intimate, personal connections with the divine. The charismatic movement was heavily influenced by Pentecostal Christianity, which emerged in California in the early 1900s. The name Pentecostal harkens back to the Pentecost festival, which celebrates the meeting of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' disciples in the New Testament's book of Acts. The disciples are described as being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues.
3: In Jesus' name, name, amen. Amen.
0: One of the most well-known depictions of speaking in tongues is from the 2006 documentary Jesus Camp about evangelical summer camp.
3: If you don't open your mouth, the Holy Spirit can't talk. All right,
0: now I want everyone to raise your hands, and we're going to pray in tongues. Hallelujah, let's do it. Oh, we love you, Jesus. So, For many of us, seeing someone speak in tongues can be, well, disconcerting, and popular depictions of the practice often emphasize its strangeness. Videos of people speaking in tongues often focus on moments of intense emotion, or show it together with other unusual practices, such as allowing oneself to be bitten by rattlesnakes to prove God's protective power. But speaking in tongues is not, in fact, a fringe phenomenon. Many churches have a version of this prayer practice. Pew Research Center estimates that 23% of Americans are associated with the Pentecostal and or Charismatic movements, and about one in three American Pentecostals reported that they themselves speak in tongues weekly. Charismatic practices are common across Christian communities. The charismatic movement gained mainstream traction in the United States in the 1960s, partly in response to the sexual revolution, rock music, and most notably, secularism. The growing influence of secularism was evident in the landmark 1960 legal case Murray v. Curlett. A Baltimore mom and self-identified atheist named Madeline Murray sued the Baltimore public school system on the grounds that her young son shouldn't be required to read the Bible at school. Murray's case made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled 8-1 to that Bible readings could not be mandatory in public schools. What's notable about this case is not just that it curtailed Christian practice, but that it did so on the basis that it infringed on the rights of non-believers. For the first time in American history, it was acceptable to be a patriotic citizen and not be religiously affiliated. This was a scary prospect for many people, and Murray knew it. Here she is speaking on the Dutch TV program Lichtpunt.
3: An atheist is a person who questions every kind of authority, and this is the thing that is important, because if we can, uh, without blinking an eye, question the ultimate authority, God, who must be obeyed, then we can question the authority of the state, we can question the authority of a university structure, we can question the authority of our employer,
0: we can question anything. Charismatic Christianity responded to the American crisis of faith by drawing a shorter line from the worshiper to the divine. If atheists were going to try to exile God from individual and social life, charismatic Christians would fight back by inviting God even more directly into the lives of believers. Tanya Lerman, professor of anthropology and psychology at Stanford University, and author of the book, When God Talks Back, explains. When Christian
3: churches became aware that it was socially acceptable for a good American to be completely secular, they, in effect, made the access to God more democratic. They argued that anyone, any ordinary person in the congregation could and should experience God's voice intimately, personally, and directly.
0: Today, this type of personal relationship with God appears across American Christian cultures. A quick search delivers thousands of YouTube testimonials of women setting aside time for date night with Jesus. This is an iteration of the charismatic Christian understanding of direct communication with the divine presence. Here's a YouTuber named Georgie on the YouTube channel Girls Living for God. Now, I'm sure you're wondering what a date with Jesus exactly looks like. And... The greatest part is that it's different for everybody. But here's what it looks like for me. Taking walks with him after work, dressing up on a Friday night just to go read my Bible at a coffee shop. These are some of the things that I do. But the greatest part is that your relationship with the Lord is your relationship with him. And there are more subtle ways that the idea of personal God comes up in American Christian culture. Alan Jackson is a chart-topping country music singer. His classic Christian country song about personal connection to Jesus is appropriately titled, He Lives. He lives, He lives,
1: lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He He lives, He lives, Salvation to impart.
2: You ask me how.
0: As part of her research, Lerman spent time with charismatic Christian communities, whose members often spoke about receiving direct communication from God.
3: So, for example, somebody might be, um, you know, wondering where to move in Chicago. And while he was singing in church, he just felt that God said to him, move to this church in Chicago.
0: Such experiences are often celebrated but they also present a challenge to the church's authority and community.
3: These moments of a vivid experience of God are very compelling to somebody as a call to follow that God. They are also potentially very difficult in the context of a community because the stronger the call, if the individual really feels that they have been called by the God, they don't need the church. They can do whatever they feel that God has called them to do.
0: In response, the church has a process for confirming a message from God. The man who heard God say where he should move in Chicago would likely ask his community, and especially his pastor, to pray with him to verify his decision. This confirmation step is an important check on personal experience because while charismatic Christians believe that God can speak directly to the individual, they also believe the individual might get the message wrong. Perhaps God doesn't want that man to move to Chicago at all. If an individual's interpretation strays too far from community opinion, the community won't validate the revelation. This is a good thing if, for example, someone believes that they are being told by divine revelation to commit a violent crime. But it's not so good if God is telling them that humans cause climate change and their community disagrees.
3: So if you are trying to experience God intimately, and you have this very sophisticated understanding of how your experience of God is sort of filtered through all this human stuff, you you easily begin to treat your experience of God as having a really complicated relationship to what's true. And I think that climate change and views about Trump maybe get kind of caught up in some of that quasi-fictional understanding of the world.
0: In other words, for charismatic Christians, understanding of truth can change depending on ongoing conversations between a single individual and God. When it comes to an issue like climate change, where there is scientific consensus, but there may not be consensus within the church, this creates a short circuit in the system. If an individual believes that climate change is real, but their religious community does not, does that mean the individual is misinterpreting a divine message? Could human-caused climate change be scientifically true without being divinely true? Or is there an impasse between scientific truth and Christian truth? Roughly around the same time that charismatic Christianity was becoming more firmly embedded in American Christian culture, a new set of ideas was taking root in the academy, postmodernism. Postmodernism is a notoriously difficult term to define. First of all, a key postmodern move is to resist systematic classification. For that reason, practically nobody defines themselves as a postmodernist it's usually a pejorative assigned by its enemies. Another difficulty is that postmodernism refers to related but not entirely analogous trends in several different fields, art and architecture, political theory, and literature and philosophy. Perhaps for this reason, Gary Aylesworth, a professor emeritus of philosophy at Eastern Illinois University, talks about postmodernism not as a distinct set of doctrines, but as a sensibility.
1: What I'm calling a postmodern sensibility is the the application of modern strategies and uh, practices of critique against the institutionalization of modernity itself. And the key source there is uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard's book, The Postmodern Condition from 1979. And his point in that book is that the current practices of scientific research and knowledge production are such that there's really no overarching concept, there's no overarching uh, meta-narrative, which is his term, that would allow us to combine all these activities and all these paradigms together into one system.
0: Meta-narratives are the ideas that fundamentally structure the way we think. Capitalism, Christianity, racial hierarchy, and nationalism are all overarching narratives that have shaped the way Americans conceive of our lives and society. Leotard claims that these meta-narratives are constructed using selective facts, and this makes it impossible to see a complete picture of reality. A postmodern approach is to look at the perspectives that these meta-narratives leave out. For example, capitalism might work in terms of long-term GDP growth, but often fails at the level of individual experience. Similarly, Triumphalist meta-narratives of historical progress tend to celebrate advancements such as global trade, while ignoring issues like genocide and mass incarceration. Leotard was especially interested in the limitations of science, which is arguably the most dominant meta-narrative of the modern age. So
1: it's a it's counter to uh, the Enlightenment idea that science would be a system of knowledge that we would progressively be able to fill in and complete as, as time went on, as knowledge accumulated. But Leo Tar points out that's not what happened.
0: As each scientific discipline developed, it generated its own criteria for producing and legitimizing knowledge. The sciences themselves cannot be organized into one whole system of science. There really
1: is no meta-narrative that can make sense of all of them together conceptually. Uh, Whatever unity there might be, it's reduced
0: simply to the mechanics of administration. But there's no overriding sense of what knowledge is. For a postmodernist, there can't be a single, objective, unified collection of truth. Instead, there are many smaller narratives that arise out of various communities and disciplines. Truth is not a thing that is discovered, but a story that is told. This postmodern theory of truth directly challenged the more common sense notion that truth exists outside of subjective interpretation. And it led to the idea that those claiming to hold universal, timeless, capital T truth were aggressively and naively pushing their own parochial story onto others.
2: Really, given the idea that there's no such thing as objective truth, what can you say about somebody who professes to have the truth? Uh, They're a bully. Uh, It's political. Uh, Anybody who professes to know the truth, it's not so much that they're wrong, but that they're lying, that they're a fascist, that they're trying to impose their point of view on you.
0: That's Lee McIntyre, research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University and author of the book Post-Truth. Many of our meta-narratives are built by people in power who are interested in maintaining that power rather than finding truth the early postmodernists were concerned that science was becoming one of those metanarratives, that it was being built too consistently by those in power, and that it failed to ask questions that would improve the lives of those on the margins.
2: Some of the people who were influenced by postmodernism began to apply some of these ideas to science and to make the argument that science was not discovering objective truth and that scientists were bullies and fascists and that, that if you wanted to understand what a scientific equation was... You had to understand the politics of the person who had come up with it.
0: Thus began what some called the science wars, with the explosion of the field of philosophy of science. Postmodern theorists from university English departments began questioning the legitimacy of scientific study. Why were scientists studying what they were studying? What questions weren't they asking? The science wars came to a head in 1996, when New York University physicist Alan Sokol submitted a paper to the postmodern academic journal Social Text. Sokol titled the paper Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. The paper was wrapped up in theoretical and nonsensical jargon and was intended to make fun of postmodernism. Sokol was essentially arguing that, under the guise of postmodernism and progressive thought, anything could be considered scientific truth. After Social Text published the paper, Sokol revealed that it was a hoax. This prompted outrage in the postmodernist academic world. Andrew Ross, co-editor of Social Text, called Sokol's article a childish stunt, while other editors of the journal wondered whether Sokol was simply suffering from a, quote, collapse of his intellectual resolve. Despite Sokol's best efforts, postmodern inquiry into science didn't end with his paper. Here's Sokol 13 years later at a 2009 conference hosted by a humanist society called Humanisterna in Stockholm he was still arguing against an individualistic postmodernist worldview and in favor of the scientific one.
1: What I'd like to talk about tonight is the nature of scientific inquiry and its importance for public life. My aim is to discuss the importance, not so much of science, but of what you might call the scientific worldview, a concept that goes far beyond the specific disciplines that we usually think of as science. And I want to argue that Clear thinking, combined with a respect for evidence, especially inconvenient and unwanted evidence, evidence that challenges our preconceptions, are of the utmost importance to the survival of the human race in the 21st century.
0: Postmodernism tells us to question scientific meta-narratives. This makes climate denial easy. The empirical data is not a force of its own, but bends to the will of subjective interpretation and personal experience. Here's Lee McIntyre talking about the decade following the publication of Sokol's paper.
2: Science deniers started to really enjoy these ideas from postmodernism and use them to deny science. Modern day science denial against climate change, you can trace a straight line back to Bruno Latour, Derrida, Foucault, all of these people who claim that there isn't any objective truth. All of a sudden, you say, well, if there's no objective truth, how do we know climate change is
0: real? Postmodernism evolved from an academic theory used primarily by thinkers on the left into what we've come to call post-truth. The term post-truth was first used in a Nation article by the writer Steve Tessick, published in 1992, four years before Alan Sokol began poking holes in academic postmodernism. Tesick argued that the sordid, painful details of the Watergate scandal and the Vietnam War made Americans want to just close their eyes to uncomfortable truths. We would believe government lies as long as they were reassuring and anodyne. He writes, All the dictators up to now have had to work hard at suppressing the truth. We, by our actions, are saying that this is no longer necessary, that we have acquired a spiritual mechanism that can denude truth of any significance. In a very fundamental way, we, as a free people, have freely decided that we want to live in some post-truth world. The trend Tessick identified has only intensified in recent decades, and is perhaps best immortalized by Stephen Colbert's 2005 monologue on The Colbert Report, a parody of right-wing news talk shows. And that brings us to tonight's word. Truthiness.
2: (laughs) Now, I'm sure some of the word police, the wordinistas
0: over at Webster's, are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me know that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist, constantly telling us what is or isn't true or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right.
2: I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart.
0: Eleven years later, post-truth seemed to reach its culmination.
1: In the aftermath of media coverage of the US presidential election campaign and Britain's vote to quit the EU, the Oxford Dictionary's groups declared post-truth to be its international word of the year.
0: Postmodernism is characterized by a skepticism toward meta-narratives and the power structures that create them. Post-truth is the conservative politicization of postmodernism. It's a political tool that appeals to personal experience over objective reality and especially over science. This played out in real time when CNN news anchor Allison Camarota interviewed former U.S. House Speaker Newt Gingrich, an early supporter of Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump, in July 2016.
3: Violent crime across the country is down.
0: The average
1: American, I will bet you this morning, does not think crime is down, does not think they are safer.
3: But it is. We are safer and it is down. No,
0: that's your view. The, facts. I, just, I just told him no. But what I said is also a fact. In this interview, Camarota is asserting one truth claim. She points to authoritative, objective statistics from the FBI. Gingrich asserts another truth claim, and he does it in an extraordinary way. He agrees with Camarota before refuting her claim. He says that the statistics may be right in theory. Yes, these are the facts. However, he argues that the science doesn't speak to the experience of people people feel threatened ginker says that feeling is also a fact this is the underlying logic of post-truth politics in this framework lying isn't lying since there's no such thing as objective truth there is only subjective interpretation james ladyman a professor of philosophy at the university of bristol describes the ironic tragedy of this outcome in a 2017 panel at the london school of economics he argues that although postmodernists see themselves as progressive their abandonment of fact-based narratives ends up strengthening the status quo.
2: Liberation movements have always relied upon and will continue to rely upon the careful marshalling of facts and evidence in order to make up for the fact that they don't have power uh, and wealth. And really, I think that we should um, see postmodernist repudiation of uh, objective fact, of of evidence, of truth, of there being knowledge, right and wrong, and so on, as really basically
0: playing into the hands of the the forces of of darkness. Postmodernism and Protestantism are in many ways opposing worldviews. Postmodernists believe in many small, provisional truths. Protestants, on the other hand, believe in one big, universal, capital T truth, Jesus Christ. Yet because they both center individual experience over that of authority, they have both contributed to the conditions that make climate denial more possible. You can see this shared influence even in the words we use. Do you believe in climate change? It's phrased as a question of faith, akin to asking, do you believe in God? Positing climate change as an issue of belief puts the two questions on equal footing in the balance between objective and subjective truth. Cynical corporate and political interests can more easily sow doubt and confusion about climate change by presenting what counselor to President Trump, Kellyanne Conway, famously called alternative facts. When no single authority can be trusted to arbitrate reality, one crackpot on Fox News can be given as much credence as a 97% consensus of climate researchers. So, you might say, let's abandon the postmodernist skepticism towards grand meta-narratives. Clearly, postmodernism didn't work. However, it's important to remember that this skeptical stance has opened up space for new and more encompassing perspectives, validating and giving voice to women, queer people, black people, indigenous people, immigrants, the list goes on and on. The extraordinary lies that our unjust economic system and mass incarceration and the war on terror were built on, and which were pushed by authorities in power, justify the call for smaller, more local, more subjective understandings of truth. I certainly don't want to return to a society where a single meta-narrative is the only narrative that counts. So, how do we hold the benefits of subjectivity in tension with the detrimental impacts of post-truth logic? Perhaps the answer is to better understand what it means to believe that truth is socially constructed. Here's Gary Alesworth again. Just
1: because truth is constructed doesn't mean it isn't still true, and it doesn't mean that we still cannot make evaluative judgments about truth.
0: It just means that there's no escaping our own subjectivity. No single individual's experience can ever be objective. Each person sees only a sliver of the collective reality, and their perspective impacts the paths they take, the questions they ask, and the truth as they understand it. Truth may not be a system of knowledge that we can someday complete, like Enlightenment scientists and philosophers believed, but we shouldn't abandon the pursuit altogether. We must understand the limits to our own understandings, affirm the experiences of our neighbors, and accept that there are some truths that are larger than we can see. When it comes to the major elements of climate change, the science is clear and urgent. We know that climate change is occurring and that it is caused by human behavior. We know that it is already impacting our communities and our Earth with rising sea levels and warmer global temperatures. And yet, we cannot exactly predict the impacts to come. This uncertainty is ultimately fairly small in range, but if you require 100% certainty to act, you'll find yourself vulnerable to the paralysis that is the goal of the merchants of doubt. Those tempted to deny climate change because of some small scientific uncertainty or because they haven't seen it with their own eyes can draw inspiration from the Protestant concept of faith. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, faith is defined as, quote, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Climate change deniers should exercise faith in the community of scientists who have come to a consensus on climate change and listen to the communities who are already experiencing its detrimental effects. Those who do accept climate change but are paralyzed by despair over what feels like inevitable catastrophe can also exercise faith. Faith that their individual choices can make a difference. Faith in the possibility of dramatic collective action to transform our economy and energy systems. Faith that we can build a future in which humanity and nature are in harmony. Postmodernism and a personal God both encourage us to untangle the truth alone. But each of our individual perceptions of the truth is incomplete. Only by working together can we paint a full picture of reality and find common solutions to our common struggles. This episode was produced by Leah Rechtman. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Anita Danvantri, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at at ideas.org. We're also on a new audio platform that me and Galen Beebe have been building called Lyceum. Lyceum is an app that makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts to listen to and have conversations with the hosts and other listeners of those shows. I'll be posting updates and answering questions in the Ministry of Ideas discussion room on Lyceum, so I encourage you to download the app, search for Ministry of Ideas, and join the discussion. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. And today I want to tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called Rumble Strip. In it, host Erica Heilman invites herself into people's homes to find out what they know, what they hate, who they love, and what they're afraid of, and what makes them more like you than you'd realize. In Bear Man, Erica shares the story of Ben Killam and his sister Phoebe, the only licensed bear rehabilitators in the state of New Hampshire. You'll hear about Squirty, one of Ben's first cubs, who is now 24 years old and a grandmother. So check it out at rumblestripvermont.com or anywhere podcasts are available.
3: Hub and Spokes.
1: Audio Collective.